Welcome back to Women in the Word, everyone. I'm so happy to be with you. I'm Lynn Kitchens, and it's always great to be here, be with you. I love looking at the lives of Samuel and Saul and soon David so we can see things we can glean for our own lives. A theme that jumps out at me from these two chapters, probably jumped out at you too, is if you obey God, all will be well for you. If you disobey God, all will not be well for you. It's a pretty simple but incredibly important truth in our lives. And that doesn't mean that that obedience shields us from all the trials in life that come our way. But obedience brings blessings from God and disobedience brings problems. Um, I thought about when I was very young, I remember watching my mom iron clothes and I was always fascinated how this iron, this flat, shiny silver thing could somehow get wrinkles out of clothes. And so we lived in a really small house at the time and so my mom would do the ironing in the kitchen and lots of times I would just ask her if I could just touch the iron so I could figure this iron out. Of course, she always told me no. One night she was ironing and she left the room. And I thought, this is my chance to disobey my mom. This is my chance to explore the magical iron. And so I went up to this hot iron and I put my hand against that shiny, fascinating <laughs> face of the iron. Not for very long, though. I soon uh, took my hand away. I remember uh, the rest of the night with my hand in a bowl of ice, and I realized the magical iron is not very magical. And I realized, and I'm not very smart. <laughs> Didn't know what I was doing. Disobedience hurts. Israel had been dealing with that truth throughout their entire history. Oppression, captivity, the wilderness, defeat, loss, even though early on God had given them a blueprint so that they could always have a blessed life with him. On your verse sheet, Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed, God is saying, obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the prophet, the priest, and judge named Samuel was just one of the many ways that God had tried to bless Israel. If they obeyed God as he spoke through the judge and prophet Samuel, blessings would follow. But we've been realizing in the last couple weeks that their eyes are roaming towards other nations again, and they were envying them because they had kings with skin on. And they wanted one too. They wanted a human king who would be their judge, fight their battles, make them feel secure. And we just have to think, what about God's blueprint? What about the blueprint he gave you? They already had a king who loved them. They were to be his treasured possession. Samuel called their desire for an earthly king wicked and evil. 
And I thought on a small scale, we might be able to get a better picture if you just think about your child coming up to you and saying, I don't want you as a mom. I want that mom. And I'm going to put all my allegiance on that mom. So once more in these chapters, Samuel gathers the people together implores them to obey the commands of God, but before he does, he wants to remind them that he stood before them as a prophet who did obey God, who did follow God, even when their desire for a king broke his heart. He went to God about it. Look on your verse sheet, 1 Samuel 8. But their desire displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. And so Samuel is about to make a case for himself and a case for God before the people. So look at chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you've said to me, and I've made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you, and I've walked before you from my youth until this day. So it was Israel that asked for a king. Samuel wants to make sure they remember that. He only anointed a king because God told him to. He obeyed God's command and anointed Saul as Israel's earthly king. And in these verses, he's also making it clear that this earthly king would be ushering a new system of government for Israel. Did you notice how Samuel compares himself with the king here? He says, now a king walks among you, but I've walked among you. I've walked among you since your youth. For many, many years, I was your leader, appointed by God, and now you have a new king walking around that will be your leader. It was a new system of government, the beginning of a monarchy in Israel. Samuel will be the last judge, but he's also about to let them know that the fate of this new king depends on his ability to be in submission to the true king. Never should an earthly king try to usurp what God, the true king of Israel, says. And Israel's going to also see God's going to continue to use Samuel to get God's will accomplished in Israel. And so he's telling them, um, in a minute, even though Saul just defeated the Ammonites with a mighty victory, he wants Israel to know, do you think that king gave you that victory? Who has always given Israel the victory? God has always given Israel the victory, and you need to not be a people that forget that. That victory came from God as it always was in your history. So first, Samuel is going to reestablish his credibility with Israel after years of serving them. So let's look at verse 3. The people are before Samuel, and he says, Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Of whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? 
From whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore to you. And they said, you haven't defrauded us or pressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witnessed against you and is anointed as witness this day that you haven't found anything in my hand. And they said, he's our witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of Egypt, the land of Egypt. With their own mouth, Israel is admitting how wonderfully Samuel served him. And when they acknowledged Samuel's integrity without knowing it, they were honoring God's system of government. They were admitting God had done a good job. It was a confession that him ruling through prophets and judges was a good way. And we've all heard that expression, why fix something that isn't broken? That's Samuel's point right here. He reminds Israel, you know, here all of a sudden he brings up Moses and Aaron. Why? He's telling them, think of all the way back to your first leaders. They were godly. They were good. I always had leaders for you, beginning with Moses and Aaron. And they will suffer the consequences of chasing after man's ways instead of God's ways. And we all know a lot of the story of Israel. Many ungodly leaders ruin the nation of Israel. So what's our obedience observation? We obey God rather than man because God's way is best. And I know that sounds like, okay, we, we would know that. You know, even Christians today can sort of get pulled away by some of the messages that the world throws out there. They're always offering ways to make our lives better. And like Israel, we want security. We want happiness when others seem to have it. Like Israel, we can get enticed and pulled into directions that really leans into the world's ways. Read this. Listen to that. Get this book, follow him, follow her, drink this, eat that, and all will be well. I remember I was on a mission trip to Africa once, and here you are with people who have very little. And we came back into Texas, and I got off the plane, and we were in front of a bookstore, and the titles of the books just jumped out at me. Something I never really noticed before. Um, all the ways to make your life easy. All the ways to look out after number one. Titles like how to have the best life, true happiness, how to be a success, how to be rich. It just seems so sad to me coming from this other country to realize we all chase these things that cannot fill those holes that are in our heart. I even looked up yesterday some of Oprah's promises over the years that would bring a better life to us. This is the best one. This one cracked me up. How to manifest anything you want or desire by writing it down. Who knew? <laughs> How to stop bad thoughts. You can have it all. Think like a queen. What does that mean? How to attract anything you want. 
You know, my sister gave me a Christmas present this year. She was at our house. She's from L.A. And I opened this box, and in it is a plaque about this big with a photo of a giant basket with holly and poinsettias and ferns that was real beautiful. And I just took it out and went, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what am I going to do with this? And she started laughing. She ordered me that basket, that ivy, that poinsettia, and that's what the company sent her when she ordered it. They promised one thing, but they were sneaky, and they sent her another thing. The world promises lots of things. Only God's ways are true. Only God's ways bring peace and purpose. Only God's ways bring life. So we obey God's ways and not the world's ways. Look at Psalm 119. I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Give me life and your ways. Let the insolent be put to shame, because they wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Okay, so Samuel wants to continue his defense for God's ways. He's going to confront Israel that time after time the nation of Israel chose the world's ways. And their desire for a king, Samuel wants them to realize, is you're doing the same thing. Your forefathers did. You're looking around and wanting to follow the world. So just as Moses and Aaron, the first leaders, pleaded with Israel before God, Samuel says, I'm going to plead like Moses and Aaron, just like them for you right now. Look at verse 7. Samuel says, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. So in the next few verses, Samuel is looking out at this disobedient people. He hits their hearts with his words and begins to tell them, look at the past history of Israel. Look at everything God did, even though they would forget his love and they would worship sticks and stones and statues instead of him. And he says, first of all, they brought you deliverance over and over again. They delivered you from Egypt where you were enslaved. They delivered you from oppression and captivity, from the Midianites, from the Philistines, from the Canaanites, from many nations. It was Israel's sin that brought them to captivity, but every time they repented, God was there. He loved them. He would rescue them. Even in the face of their constant rebellion, he would respond with correction and rescue. And then Samuel tells them, secondly, he gave you great leadership to keep you on his path. Moses, Aaron, Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, Samuel, godly leaders, that was God's system of government. That was God's way of ruling. It displayed his faithfulness. He said, if you listen to me through my choice of these godly leaders, then you will be following me and be blessed. And even though God did that, 
with all those leaders and judges, they were a faithless people, always choosing false gods over the living God who loved them. And now Samuel's saying, so now, this generation, you look up and you see your enemy, the Ammonites, and think, we want to be like them. They have a king. Instead of remembering what God has done for you, forgetting him, just like your ancestors did, and now you're demanding a king from other nations. Look at verse 12. Samuel says, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king of you chosen for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Samuel wants them to recognize these two stories he's letting them see and to make them realize their demand for a king was contrary to the purposes and the will of God. They wanted to be like other nations, but why in the world would they want to be? They weren't like other nations. They were different. Other nations lived in evil, sin, darkness, worship false gods, and Israel as a nation was created and called and chosen by God to take those nations out of the darkness, to be the light for those nations, to point them to the fact that those aren't gods you're worshiping. There's the God, the king of the world, the king of the universe, the king of everything. What a privilege for Israel to be a nation that would teach people about God and also bring life and truth to the earth. They served a heavenly king who could part the Red Sea, who could part the Jordan River, who could drop bread from heaven, who healed did miracles, sent his word to them. Israel had a king who loved them with a love that you and I can't comprehend. How in the world could an earthly king ever be like Israel's king? Samuel continues, so this is your new government. You wanted it, but here's how it must work. So you don't continue to repeat the sins of the past. Look at verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him, obey his voice, not rebel against the commands of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reign over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commands of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So once again, God graciously gives them another blueprint so they can be blessed by him. Fear God. Serve God. Obey God. And stop rebelling against me. And this earthly king that you had to have, he has to do the same thing. If so, all will be well. If not, all won't be well. God's hand will be against you and against this king. And I sort of picture Samuel here. He's probably exhausted, stopping, taking a deep breath because he wants to seal the deal. 
In other words, he wants the people's hearts to be moved to conviction. Otherwise, they won't be able to move forward. And let's look at verse 16, see how that happened. Samuel says, now therefore stand still, see this great thing the Lord will do before your eyes. Isn't it wheat harvest today? I'll call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see your wickedness is great, which you've done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So this heavenly sign authenticated the warnings of Samuel and convicted Israel of their sins. You know, thunder and rain never occurred during an early summer wheat harvest. And it sort of looks like it lasted all day long. So the people are looking up to heaven and the rain is hitting them and a storm is loud. I think it thundered all day as well in torrents. And the people's hearts began to tremble. Look at verse 19. And the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Conviction. They had to come to that point. They knew the storm was an act of God. They knew, again, he was our true king. And they realized, finally, asking their true king for a human king was a sin. And they were also reminded Samuel is God's man to also be our leader. But because of the steadfast love and the incredible grace of God, after they're convicted, he speaks these incredible words. It was almost hard for me to believe them when I read them. It was so moving. If you look at verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, don't be afraid. You've done this evil. Yet don't turn aside from following the Lord, but serve him with all your heart. And don't turn aside after empty things that can't profit or deliver, for they're empty. For the Lord will not forsake you, his people, for his great name's sake. It's pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord, serve him faithfully with all your heart, consider what great things he's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Israel's past couldn't be undone but their future could be devoted to the Lord because verse 22 says, he won't forsake you. You're his people. He was pleased to choose you to be a people for himself. And he loved you even though right now you are rejecting him. He still loves you. And I would imagine those words would also feel like rain, not that kind of rain, but cleansing, cleansing and healing and hope in their hearts as they realize we can still be God's chosen people. 
They can have fellowship with God. Their calling hasn't changed. But this is what Samuel said they must do. Don't turn aside from following God and pursue those empty, worthless things. He's talking about idols here. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Remember what God has done for you. And don't you love it that Samuel commits to pray for them? He's probably so sick of them. <laughs> probably so tired of and hurting inside for their choices. But he loves them like God loves them. And he knows it would be a sin if he walked away from his calling to be a leader to the people of Israel. And so we can sum up his final words here. Be faithful to the Lord. All will be well. Continue to be wicked, all won't be well. If they're wicked, Samuel said, God will have to sweep you away, you and your king. Here's our obedience observation here. Our past sins don't disqualify us from future blessings. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. Don't you know how guilt can just sort of stop us in our tracks? And we don't want to move forward. We think God's mad at us. We think we don't deserve it. It shouldn't stop us because God remains faithful even when we're not, even when our behavior has rejected him. We can always turn back to him. Look at 2 Timothy. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he can't deny himself. In Isaiah 55, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I went to Ken Miller's office yesterday. You know, he's the men's ministry uh, leader for the church wonderful guy and I totally bothered him because he was hard at work and I just stood at his door and made him look at me uh, anyway I said can I tell your part of your story to the women tomorrow and he said sure because he's told the mighty men it's a perfect illustration of what we just read he grew up Ken grew up in a very godly home with a super godly dad um, who was a pastor and then Ken went away to college and he decided to listen to the voices of the world and live the way the world was calling him to live. And that's how he was living throughout college. His father knew it. People knew it. He didn't care. And he told me, I just realized, well, that's it. I mean, God will never love me again. I won't be used by God again. And I can't really do anything about it at this point. And then his dad got really ill and happened to be in a hospital near Ken's college. So we knew he had to go visit him. And he was terrified to go visit his dad. And he said he walked in the room and his dad just loved on him, just forgave him. And it was the biggest turning point in Ken Miller's life because he walked away and thought, if my earthly father could do that, my heavenly father can do that. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to go back. I'm going to walk back into the light and into God's will. And I'm going to start obeying him again. And look what he's done. Changed the lives of so many men because of his teaching and his love for the Lord and his faithfulness. 
We had a song at a women's event recently, You Make All Things New, you may have heard it. I love the lines. One verse says, I've heard that you take what's broken and make it whole again. Well, here's the pieces of my heart. What can you do with them? I can't hold them together anymore, so I will let them fall, surrendered on the floor. You make all things new because you're a God of mercy and a God of love. Do what only you can do. You make all things new. We have the same opportunity Israel had when we have been chasing after empty and worthless things that we've made idols and kings in our lives, things that have put us in captivity. We can turn away. We return to our true king. He'll be waiting for us. And not only that, he'll have plans for our future to bless us and use us. I know for me, sometimes you and I, we look in a mirror, we just see our sins. But when we turn around to God in repentance, he looks at us and all he sees is his treasured possession. That's our God. We are always covered in the compassion and the grace of our God. He's our true king. Okay, we're going to look at Saul now, so let's look at chapter 13, verse 1. Let's just look at the first part of 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. Okay, that's interesting. Was he a toddler when (laughs) he became king? A lot of translations say different things. It actually is translated, Saul lived and then became king, um, and... We can tell that something, actually the translation is Saul was years old when he became king. So most uh, commentators believe that somehow the transcribing person left out the number of his years. And he was probably between 30 and 40 years old at this point when he became king. And we're about to look at this Philistine battle. He would have been um, a few years after that that this battle came to be. He would end up fighting the Philistines with three major battles. They were always, always a hard nation for Israel. So after a couple years of being king, he has really gathered an army. He has trained an army. It's a true army. So Saul faced his first battle with the Philistines, but it also began a battle with his pride. Right now, to this point, we've seen some humble things about Saul, but with this battle, disobedience begins to change him. So they're about to face the Philistines. There's 3,000 men of Israel prepared for battle. 2,000 are with Saul in the hill country of Bethel. 1,000 are with Saul's son, Jonathan, in Gibeah. Everyone else Saul sent home. And then Jonathan, his son, decides to sneak into the Philistine garrison and conquer it. So look at verse 3. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the the garrison of the Philistines that was at Teba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, "Let the Hebrews hear." And all Israel heard it said. 
that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Okay, seems there is um, another translation issue here. Let's see if I'm in the right space. Oh, no, I want to go up here. Okay, our first introduction of Jonathan is pretty amazing, isn't it? He, we're going to see a lot about him. He was an amazing man. Uh, we get a little glimpse of it. He's got a lot of initiative. He's got courage. And I thought it was interesting that all of Israel had heard Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. I do think usually kings got the glory when someone in their nation conquered another nation. But it is interesting to me because we're going to see later on, it was real important for Saul to get the glory for the battles that Israel won. And it made me think, because he had the trumpet blown, if maybe this is where the expression comes from, don't toot your own horn. (laughs) Do you think it did? I thought that was kind of interesting. Okay, regardless, this was a victory Israel needed to hear about to gain courage, but I don't really know that that happened. Let's look at verse 5. The Philistines are mad. They mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, in other words, wherever they could hide. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, and Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Okay, here's another little transcription problem here. It wouldn't have been 30,000 chariots. Maybe your version says 3,000. That would have been the right number. 30,000 wouldn't have worked there. But wasn't 3,000 still a huge amount? The Philistines' response to Jonathan's victory over them is overwhelming. They're so angry. And Israel is overwhelmed. And my first thought was, wait a minute, they have their king with them. This king that was going to make them secure and make them feel great and was going to win their battles. Why are they so afraid? Even with their earthly king at their side, the Israelites are filled with terror and running for their lives. They're desperate. Envision them hiding in caves, holes, rocks, tombs. Cisterns. Imagine someone jumping into a cistern and hearing a voice in the dark. I was here first. Go jump in a hole somewhere. (laughs) All over the land. Here's Israel. The rest of them followed Saul. It said they were trembling. That word actually means quaking with fear. And I wondered, maybe as some of them trudged in fear behind Saul, they realized the first time, our king is just a man. I hope our heavenly king doesn't desert us. I hope some of them thought about that. And they were about to witness that this earthly king had the potential to sin and disobey God. 
Two years earlier, Samuel had told Saul, wait for me seven days in Gilgal before this Philistine battle, and I'll come, I'll offer offerings and sacrifices to God. Samuel was going to consecrate this battle that was coming up, and he was also going to tell Saul God's instructions for the rest of this battle. But Saul decided he was just going to move on without Samuel. Look at chapter 13, verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering, and when he had finished, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet and greet him, and Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw the people were scattering from me, you didn't come within the days appointed, and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, and so I said, now the Philistines will come down against me in Gilgal, and I haven't sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. First in these verses we notice Saul seems to be pretty oblivious to the depth of his sin because he runs out to greet Samuel after he's already offered the burnt offering. Second, we notice he defends his actions with lots of excuses. I think he's telling Samuel the excuses right here in this picture. He was forced, he says, and that means he did what he thought had to be done. Sounds somewhat reasonable. So what is Saul's sin here? Maybe the issue was that Saul performed a sacrifice only a priest can do. And that was definitely an issue. But there are some other examples in the Old Testament where there were some exceptions to this. It seems the main issue centered around Saul's disobedience to Samuel's instructions, which meant he was being disobedient to God's plans. As king, he was to submit to this God, the true God, but he took matters into his own hands. Samuel's late arrival, whether intentional on Samuel's part or providentially ordained, it put Saul to the test, and he failed. And Samuel makes it clear, circumstances don't justify Saul's conduct. Let's look at verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army from Gilgal to Jebiah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Okay, kingships are usually dynasties. The kingdom is passed down from the son to his sons to his sons. Saul would have been assuming one day Jonathan is going to rule in my place. Samuel stops that idea right here when he walks up to Saul. And he tells him, your dynasty is over. You've done foolishly. 
You've disobeyed God. God desires a prince over his people who would set his heart of love on God and obey him. And Samuel's looking in Saul's face and thinks, you're not the man. You're not the man. As a result of his disobedience, his descendants, Samuel's telling him, they will never follow you. You have no dynasty. He wasn't rejected as king yet, but that is not far away because Saul continued to put his will over God's will. And now when Saul looks around, he's got Samuel mad at him. Samuel leaves, and then there's just 600 men still with Saul. He gathers them with his son Jonathan in Gibeah. But their situation is bleak. The Philistines are many more than Israel. They greatly outnumber it. And they had swords and spears and shields and equipment and chariots. Israel was not skilled in making weapons. They didn't know how. They couldn't get iron and turn it into a weapon. But the Philistines had been taught how to do that. So they made it their aim to never let Israel know how to do that. So if anybody came around and tried to get into Israel that they figured out was a blacksmith, they made sure that didn't happen. So Israel's in trouble here. Another bad situation happened in Gibeah. The Philistines sent out three raiding parties from Michmash, and they weakened Israel's position. They weakened their provision. They weaken their people. So our story today closes in a pretty bad place. There's 600 defenseless Israelites facing thousands of armored men with chariots. We picture Saul and Jonathan. One had a spear and one had a shield, it seemed like, or a knife. And there in front of the 600 men, those are their weapons. The garrison of the Philistines also had taken control of the pass at Michmash. The battle scene is set. So you have to come back next week to find out what happens. (laughs) What do we take away from this part of the story? Our circumstances should not dictate our ability to obey. Saul had been receiving encouragement and direction from Samuel, but this battle overwhelmed Saul, and he began to turn away from what was good and true. He came up with his own foolish plan. If you notice, he had four excuses for disobeying God that made perfect sense to him. First, he says, people were scattering from me. You didn't come on time, Samuel. The Philistines were gathering and getting stronger, and I wanted to receive God's favor. So here's another way to put that, which we can relate to when we're afraid. Saul displayed fear of people's support, fear of God's timing, fear of the problem growing, fear of losing control, the same fears that you and I face when we're terrified in a difficult situation or a trial that comes away. But we can't justify our disobedience because we're afraid of the circumstances. Really, the lesson in here is to wait. Wait for God to act. 
and not take things in our own hands. Wait for him and his instructions. We can do that. We have this as a guide. And this is what Saul should have waited for. Samuel was bringing the word of God with him. We have the Holy Spirit. And look at Deuteronomy 30, what it says. God is telling Israel a command, and then he tells them, For this commandment I commanded you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart, so you can do it. That's true for us. His word is in our mouth, in our heart. We can obey him. We remember the Lord like Samuel taught Israel. We remember how much he loves us. We recognize his past mercies. We know he's in the battle with us. And so we obey his commands. I love it that Jesus told his followers, obedience is what he expects from his followers if they love him. Look at John 14. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. We will come to him and make our abode with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. All is well when we obey the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We love that you give us ways we can obey you, your word, your spirit, people that can encourage us. That's your love for us. We love that we're your treasured possession with a calling to represent you in this world, to take people out of darkness into the light. We ask that we would follow you closely, follow you with joy, and feel your presence every day. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.